0: This podcast is recorded on the traditional and unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, tsleil
1: and Coquitlam peoples.
2: British Columbia, I've seen your mountains high, Seen your pretty rainbows and your blue crystal skies, Watched your winding rivers as they flow around the bend, To me you're not a stranger, you'll always be a friend,
1: Coming to you from the West Coast, this is Placost. Today is January 13th, 2022, and this is episode 272. I'm Scott DeLuna Bohm. And I'm, once again, Stuart Prest. Stuart, thanks for joining me again as Ian continues his uh, paternity leave. It's my pleasure
0: to, to pinch hit one more time and to talk about all the news happening around the province.
1: Uh, so on today's show, I sit down with uh, Val Letwin to discuss his campaign to become the leader of the BC Liberal Party. And we go through a roundup of the stories of the past week or so. Uh, thank you to everyone who supports the podcast by contributing each month or annually to keep the show going. Support the pod at patreon.com slash Joining me tonight is Val Litwin, our candidate for the leadership of the BC Liberal Party. Val, welcome to the podcast.
2: Hey Scott it's great to be here Thanks for inviting me.
1: Oh you're more than welcome. We're trying to sit down with all the, our the leadership candidates and you're nice enough to uh, take some time every evening to uh, come chat with us So when let's get into this with a quick introduction who you are and why you're running for leader of the BC Liberals
2: Yeah sure I'm my full life I've been in British Columbia I was born on Vancouver Island in Victoria spent the first almost 30 years of my life there graduated from Uvic. Moved to Vancouver about 14 years ago and only a couple of years ago met my wonderful wife Joy who's a pediatric intensive care nurse at Children's Hospital. We got two young high energy boys both under the age of three and uh, really enjoying that, that stage of life. In terms of my background in why I'm running in this race. I think obviously, Scott, it's been a long race. So I've someone who's maybe coming from outside the political matrix. I've had the opportunity more time than maybe in the average race to actually introduce myself to people. So I think most people in British Columbia know now I've been a social enterpriser. I've been an entrepreneur who co-founded, grew, launched, sold an international franchise business. So I know what it's like to be an entrepreneur, hacking through red tape, dipping into personal lines of credit to make payroll. I was the vice president of operations for Canada USA for nurse next door. So I've been very close to the healthcare system in Canada and in British Columbia. I've seen the gaps. I've seen the opportunities and for the last 10 years, I've been driving hard in the not for profit space, doing public policy work, uh, sending messages to Victoria and Ottawa with zero distortion, speaking up for small businesses, communities, and, and the people that support them. So as a part of my introduction, Scott, I've always been where business people and community meet and i hope what i can bring to this race is not just someone who's experienced but someone who's young enough to understand what's around the corner how economies are changing how communities are changing but i am in this race because i've been talking to people about downloading the new operating system and i know our our listeners right now can't see we're on a computer screen we all know that little box that pops up in the top right of your computer screen that says it's time to download the new operating system and we all know what we do we click remind me later And the BC Liberal Party has been clicking remind me later for years. It is now time to download the new operating system. And what the heck is the new operating system? Any political party now that wants to gain power has to be talking about people and communities. But they have to understand business, budgets, balance sheets. And so that is my uh, motivation for why I'm in this race. I think we can build that new modern party that fits that balance between fiscal responsibility And social and environmental awareness. That's why I'm in this race and I'm excited to be here.
1: But when someone like yourself comes in from the outside to run for leader of a party, there's always the question of why do that? Why not take the step of running as an MLA in a regular election, getting some political experience under your belt before aiming for the top job?
2: Yeah, terrific, terrific question. So it's good to remind people I've been in politics for the last 10 years. I just haven't been a partisan. I've been the CEO of the Whistler Chamber of Commerce and then the BC Chamber of Commerce for almost a decade. and I'll tell you, there isn't isn't a better training ground if you wanted to move into elected office than running a local chamber. In the case of the BC Chamber, I was in a different town of BC each week, walking those main streets, shaking the hands of those entrepreneurs, meeting with community leaders and elected officials, studying the policy files that are relevant to the different regions around BC, but perhaps most importantly, I led a caucus of 125 local chamber CEOs, <laughs> all who have very competing opinions and feelings about where the province is going and what we should be doing to course correcting that pathway. Terrace and Kitimat, they sure as heck want LNG. The Tofino and Ucluelet Chambers of Commerce, not so much. They're more about tourism. I had to keep them all in the same tent moving toward a common goal. So I've been in this space, Scott, doing this work. And It was my intention to run as an MLA in the last election. I resigned from my job with the intention of running. I thought I was going to have 8 to 12 months of lead up to prepare to build my team and fundraise, but uh, Mr. Horgan called the snap election two weeks after I resigned from my position. and I was very proud of the nonpartisan status we had built up around the BC Chamber. And didn't want, didn't think it was fair to the organization or those who supported us to pop up as a partisan so quickly. So, this is the opportunity for me, and I think the base of the party is very excited to hear a message about writing the next chapter.
1: Let's dive into the future of the BC Liberals and your vision for it. You've talked about needing to upgrade the operating system and reach people more, but. I don't know. What, I'm not sure that the problem people have when, with the BC Liberals is that they're not using enough tech metaphors. So can we dive into this a little more and look at what is the actual changes you would like to see in how the party runs and how it engages with the people of BC?
2: Yeah. Yeah. Terrific. Yeah. You've asked the million dollar question, right? So here's how I'd answer that. I've now talked to thousands upon thousands of British Columbians about this party and about the future of the province because even though I announced my campaign in, gosh, it was June, I've been in this race now for over a year. And what I'm hearing from people is that they are frustrated that their choices in BC for political parties are, I can park my vote with an environment party, a people party, or a business party. I want all three. I'm a moderate fiscal responsibility type of person, but gosh, I look around me in my community. I'm looking at my kids and yeah, I care about affordability. I care about this poison drug crisis that never seems to end. That's been an emergency in this province for six years now. I care about meaningful progress on climate change, but I also don't want to shut down the economy. Where's that party? And so my vision that I've been sharing with people What is which is really resonating is look we can become Canada's first truly fiscally responsible but socially and environmentally conscious party. The shorthand way of saying that Scott is we don't have a party in BC where competitiveness meets compassion. I think we can build that party, and I'll give you a perfect example on certainly on the social side, because I think people when they hear that vision they go you're peddling utopia. Of course, great a place where economies thrive and we're taking care of all our social environmental problems. That's the holy grail. Yeah, it is. I think we can get there. Perfect example, there was a time in the BC Liberal Caucus when we had three members using wheelchairs and yet the BC Liberal Party never managed to get accessibility legislation over the line. Yet, it it is an issue that affects one in five British Columbians. 20% of our population has to deal with some sort of accessibility issue and Scott, that's not just mobility, it's sight, it's hearing, it's speech. We missed the opportunity to lead on an issue that was being felt in our party, that was being felt by members of our caucus. We missed the boat. Another great example is look at the construction sector now. What could more embody uh, free market principles than the construction sector, right? Let's build our communities. Let's make some money while we're doing it. Let's house people. Let's build great product. Let's build this province. We have incredible, an incredible development and construction community here in BC. But a number of weeks ago, I was in Victoria speaking to a room full of developers, and you would have thought you were at a mental health conference because half of the opioid overdoses in British Columbia right now are coming out of the construction sector. So you've got the epitome of free market economy actors in the construction sector dealing with the most pressing social crisis of our time. And so these issues are coming together. British Columbians, Canadians, people in Western. democracies. Now, I think they see their issues on a continuum. Everything's connected.
1: So if I was to peel that apart a bit, it sounds a little bit like you're wanting to move away from the very kind of free market only perspective that the BC liberals have sometimes been caricatured as and occasionally justified that caricature, how they've responded to some past issues. So you see kind of more of a broad role for a government to support the private sector, kind of work together in a way, or how do those two interact?
2: Yeah, it's a great it's a great question. We were not leaving that BC Liberal DNA in the dust. For me, it's not an either or proposition; it's an and proposition. So, we are going to continue to be the party that knows how to create a competitive environment here for businesses to succeed, one that attracts foreign investment. Where small business owners in BC, let's be honest, we don't have a startup problem; we have a scale up problem. So, you're a small business owner; you're thinking about staying here because you can build a business here not because it's a 4% lower corporate tax rate in Alberta and commercial real estate in downtown Calgary is a third what it is in Vancouver right now. No, we've created the environment where you can stay and succeed here. We're going to keep all that. But we have to appreciate the world has changed. And some of the problems that were sitting on the periphery that came a knock in every so often, they're in the middle of our screen now and we can't ignore them. And we can't ignore them not because they're inconvenient. We can't ignore them because... They're affecting people and communities in a very profound way. The poison drug crisis and homelessness, uh, people used to generally think this was a lower mainland concern. It's not. It's in every town of this province, north, south, east to west, top to bottom. So we have to be conscious of the fact that when people are looking to vote for a party now, they're looking for that center track balance. They want to see a government that knows how to balance the books, is fiscally responsible, that honors the taxpayer dollar and and pushes for high return on investment, but is also taking care of their communities and people and healthcare system and so on.
1: Since you brought up housing and the opioid crisis, what are your thoughts on how to actually deal with it? I think it's great that the party wants to talk about it more and that is something that uh, you'd be engaging with British Columbians on, but – what what does it mean when the rubber hits the road and decisions have to be made in Victoria on how do you deal with those?
2: Yeah, in particular with the opioid crisis, I, I, I've been saying this on for the whole duration of the race that, look, mental health discussions, addiction discussions, homelessness, and by the way, not to equate them all, it's a false equivalency, but they are connected in many regards. All those conversations, though, they've been on the periphery of our healthcare conversations for too long, and I think this is goes back to what I'm saying around competitiveness meets compassion. We understand that if we want to move forward together as a civil society and make progress and grow and be a safe place for people and an inclusive place, we have to move these conversations uh, to the center of our discussions. And when it comes to the rubber hitting the road, and the, I referenced, for example, with the the poison drug crisis we're facing in BC right now, that it's everywhere. We have communities that just do not have the resources, supports, and interventions to help these people. And we have to go out there, and we have to pick these people up, and we have to help them rebuild a life. And we have to appreciate as well that when you're dealing with addiction and trauma, and again, I'm not an expert, but I've been in these conversations, and I've been listening, and I've been learning – it's not enough to give someone a cell phone loaded with a hundred minutes and say, here's the number for the detox place. And when you're ready, give them a shout. We're walking people 10 feet down a thousand foot path. And we have to get better at connecting all these pieces of support to get people back up on their feet. And I know if we take a more uh, humanistic approach to that, and frankly, it's about in some cases more investment and getting sharper in how we link up these supports, I think we'll do better. And we just have to remind ourselves that when we aren't caring for our most vulnerable, we're failing as a civil society.
1: So more supports. There's been moves by the city of Vancouver here, the provincial government to move into more detriminalization or safe supply way. Do, do you support those policies or would you be looking at alternatives to that?
2: Yeah, so th- there's a couple of things. What I maybe didn't mention is when we're talking about mental health, for example, we know statistically That if we have um, the appropriate interventions earlier in life for individuals, because these things start to present when people are young, we do better down the road. So one of the proposals, concrete proposals I'm making is we need to get more resources and supports, especially counseling services into schools. So when kids are starting to present with issues or they're ready to stand up and say, I'm not feeling too good, uh, but who's here to support me? We have to be there to start to identify and support these young people so they have a better um, chance down the road. What's interesting on the safe supply conversation that you just mentioned there, I would like to say that my final judgment and answer on that has to be informed by experts and research and I don't have all of that at my fingertips. But I will say this, I am wary of a safe drug supply in the sense that I really do feel we have to be administering some of these very so safe, okay, but they're also still very powerful. And I think we should be still administering these in clinical settings and monitoring how people are doing. By the way, this is not to say I'm completely against it, but I, I would like to do more research and understand more, not just from the academics too and the health community, but, but people, the end user, the people that are suffering and understand, talk to them and understand what they're dealing with and what they need. I have heard stories of people going to collect their safe supply drugs and storing them up for a super high. Or taking those uh, drugs and turning around and selling them to someone else. So I want to make sure we have a system that's helping people, not enabling the problems that we have.
1: Okay. The other policy topic that you brought up so far is housing, particularly in the context of homelessness, but it's a problem that I think is being felt across the income spectrum and across life circumstances here in BC. What's your view on how the province can address that? Is there a role for the province to? Get more involved in the decision making that often happens at the local level and impedes making progress on the issue.
2: But I just wanted to confirm: this was an affordable housing question, Sorry. yes?
1: Uh, how, yeah, yeah, housing in general, and uh, is there a role for the province to step in and do more on this?
2: Outstanding question. So I'm one of the few candidates, if if not perhaps the only. I, I don't know that any other candidate has said this yet. the The most important. Job, I think, of the provincial government here in BC is to make sure we have dignified housing for the people that live here. The only problem is we are leaving, by and large, the most essential decisions around housing to a level of government that is set up to fail, <laughs> and that is the municipal government. And it's not meant to be a direct in- indictment of those municipal levels of government, but they are in a tricky position. Someone com- comes to council with a great proposal, but the NIMBYs come out and they swat that great affordable housing development out of the air because it's not on my block, it's too high, it's it's cutting off my son. I don't, I don't want renters in my neighborhood. We've evolved, we've changed. We are a world-class destination now. We have to grow up in terms of how we approach this crisis. So what I'm saying is I think the province needs to step into that responsibility and it doesn't need to be with a heavy hand with local government, but I do think we resource them to get through permitting backlogs. I think we tie infrastructure investments in those municipalities to housing requirements and i think we work on uh, also trying tying especially uh, transit investments to minimum zoning thresholds so <clears throat> do we need high rise homes in summerland high rise towers skyscrapers in summerland uh, peachland no we don't but we sure as heck need them on the broadway corridor now where we're making a multi billion dollar investment underground to move people if you want to make progress on climate change and you want to enhance livability and standard of, of living, you get density along those transit corridors. And that's what we need to do. And I think the province should play a bigger role.
1: Music to my ears on that. I'd like to circle back a bit to the vision for the party, which I've jumped off from there into the, the policy discussion slightly. One thing that some of your other can- – one of the thing that some of the other candidates have proposed is rebranding the party launching it under a new name uh new identity the argument being that either the the brand is so tainted or that it doesn't reflect to what the party really is anymore. Do do you have a view on whether or not uh, that is something the party should be doing or not?
2: I think any conversation about what the party needs to change or do differently is a healthy conversation. But I, I would say respectfully, we have to have a deeper understanding of what brand is. Because brand is not what we think and say about ourselves. Brand is what other people think about us and say about us and feel about us. And a name change, if we change the colors, the color palette and the logo, we're just changing the artwork on the outside of the can. People are more interested on in what's on the inside of the can. And so great, let's have this conversation around changing the name of the party, but let's make sure we do the deep work first. Let's figure out what the new core values are. What's the new priority set? What are the guiding principles of this party? What do we stand for? And this is uh, an intersection back to one of your questions around how do the BC liberals win back those urban areas and younger voters? Well, 61% of the population now in BC, <clears throat> pardon me, is under the age of 40. And those generations are the most brand savvy generations in the history of humanity. They can smell a, ba- a bad rebrand a mile away. And I would argue that if we don't figure out how to change on what's on the inside. And just change what's on the outside. I think it will backfire. So I have no problem changing the name. I'm just saying to people, let's make sure we talk about the most important stuff. Let's rebuild and rebrand from the inside out, because that is how you brand successfully. And frankly, that's the organization I want to be a part of.
1: Right. Sounds like your view is basically that if you do the the work that's really needed to rebuild the party, the name is at best a secondary concern or an after or I shouldn't say an afterthought, but at best, would follow from that and not lead that.
2: Yeah, I think in some ways it's just a bit of a red herring right now. It's totally on the table. I have no problem with changing the name. I just I'm here to remind people: you can talk all day long about a new color palette and a slick logo, but if we're not willing to change the behaviors, people talk is cheap, right? Like people want to see actions. How are we changing how we operate and how we behave as a party? That's the most important
1: right. part. Of that is having a slate of candidates and. Part of that's having a slate of candidates that reflect the province of the of BC as a whole. How would you go about recruiting and building that team that's actually reflective of BC?
2: So I used to I, I grew a global franchise company. I worked with Nurse Next Door, which is one of Canada's largest privately held home healthcare companies. It is also a franchise. I grew up in the business world, understanding that if the mothership wants to be successful, you have to empower and inspire and engage the grassroots. Political parties are no different. And when we talk about attracting that exciting slate of candidates, getting people excited about our platform and what we hope to accomplish here in the future, I think we need to open up those local nomination contests. And I think we need to empower those riding associations again in those constituencies to run with it, to tell us who they think is the right person that's supposed to lead the community so you might hear a little bit of screaming in the background but just let you know i'm real i do those two kids are real (laughs) i think we're fine my my wife's home now so she's just yeah she's bouncing a little bit this whole idea of opening up the opportunity for compete for people to compete fairly at, at the at the local level is about communities selecting the person they best think represents them and that's how we become the the province we seek to lead that is how we reflect the the province we seek to lead and I'll say right now Scott I will not be one of those leaders who parachutes into a riding and anoints a candidate and and then walks away what's the point of having dozens and dozens of committed volunteers and People out there networking and figuring out who would be a good fit for this party. Let's have those people come in, have an exciting contest, compete fairly, and let's let the community figure out who best represents them.
1: Well, I think any discussion of the province, the the issues that are facing it, would be incomplete without uh, discussing the pandemic. It's part of the reason we're doing this over uh, the internet rather than in person, face to face. Being the biggest challenge the governments faced in the last couple of years, they've probably not gotten everything right. Is there things you would have done differently if you had been premier? What are your thoughts on how this government's handled the pandemic and lessons that can be learned from it and how we could have improved?
2: Yeah, great question. Yeah, there's a number of things. First of all, I, I think we have to appreciate no one had a blueprint, a modern blueprint for how to respond to a global pandemic. So I give governments around the world credit and for for what they had to do with no notice and with limited resources in many cases. Obviously, in Canada, we've been lucky. We're a wealthy country. We've got a robust healthcare system. We know now that healthcare system is under extreme strain. But I do think by and large, Canada has done a fairly good job. There are two things though in particular that keep me up at night. One is that I don't think – BC tabled and really in many ways, we still don't have an economic recovery plan. And it has been two years. And Scott, I sat when I was still the CEO of the BC Chamber of Commerce, I sat on the premier's economic recovery task force. I was one of nine people appointed on that task force to represent the entire province, all regions, all sectors, all peoples. And I'll tell you for 10 months, in my humble opinion, that we convened that task force, we never talked about economic recovery. There were business representatives on that group who were pushing smart policy and real-time data. And look, Alberta's already got their petrochemical strategy rolled out. We're only four months into the pandemic. Where is BC? We have missed the opportunity to move quickly and bounce back from this. And that is because we, I believe, don't have a government that understands how to frame up a meaningful economic recovery strategy. And so we're still lagging and we're hurting and small businesses are suffering. People are suffering. Communities are suffering. The other thing, and and this is uh, obviously more on the provincial health officer side, but I give Dr. Bonnie Henry credit for how she has changed course with her team and the approach as we make our way through COVID. At the beginning of the pandemic, we really did have a one size fits all approach. And that was horrible for people in communities, I have to say. You've got cases spiking in the Lower Mainland, no cases in Cranbrook, but we have to shut down all the restaurants in Cranbrook. We saw later in the pandemic, the province taking a little bit more of a laser-focused approach by region. We have to keep getting better and better at responding in better detail and to respond more to local circumstances, I think. And Don't get me wrong, health and safety is the number one priority, but we can't keep living this Groundhog Day of shutting down entire sectors over and over again. <clears throat> and there is a balance. It is a very difficult balance. And I know the people that have had critical surgeries delayed. I have friends who are in that boat. It's not acceptable. And so health and safety does have to be the focus. But we can't shut down the economy indefinitely. So where are we going to improve? Where are we going to do better? That we need a more creative, uh, forward looking conversation around economic recovery.
1: The other Big challenge and something that we've really seen in the past, I'd say six months with the heat dome, followed by the flooding is climate and the damage the changing climate is doing. What are your thoughts on both the current direction of the province with respect to Clean BC, as well as the longer term adaptation strategies that need to be put in place? And how would a government under your leadership be different on this?
2: Yeah, I think that we have been so obsessed in our conversation around emissions that we've missed the opportunity years ago to get a little bit more meaningful and tactical on adaptation and mitigation. And I'm not sweeping the emissions stuff to the side. It's hugely important. It's existential in its consequences. If we don't lower our carbon footprint as a planet, we're not doing the right thing. Of course, BC has a low carbon advantage, and we're not adding a ton to global emissions, but we also have to do our part. My government would really start to lean in on tackling the question of how do we become more resilient and how do we adapt in the face of these climate disasters. We have entire towns burning to the ground. We have entire swaths of the lower mainland evacuating due to floods, and now we have food security issues. I want to be setting meaningful targets when it comes to climate that means something uh, for our ability to make progress on climate change. But I also want to make sure we're not impacting industries, people and communities from creating prosperity and opportunity for their families. When it comes to climate resilience, that is now, I think, the, the conversation of the future. These disasters, Scott, are expensive. And that's why a, but powerful economy goes hand in hand with climate change because it is going to cost a ton of money for us to become more resilient and to adapt in the face of this. So uh, I think you're getting the sense from me. I want climate performance, but I also want to make sure we're feathering into the conversation a much more serious, deep, and committed look to how we're, for example, upgrading infrastructure. Roads and culverts, they need to be way higher than they used to be. We need to know that when we have now whatever it is they're predicting, six to eight atmospheric rivers a uh, a year, that we're prepared for that kind of stuff. It's understanding that the problems have changed and therefore government's approach needs to change.
1: Let's pivot to uh, something a little more kind of topical with respect to the actual horse race going on now. There's been some concerns as the memberships lists have been finalized now that uh, membership sale cutoff has ended that the registrations there there may be some issues with certain people who register or certain people on the list of new members Uh, i gather your campaign has been the one raising the issue with that could you speak to your concerns there
2: Yeah, absolutely. I don't think anyone gets excited when they hear their political party maybe has some shenanigans going on or that there's a volume of people that are coming in that maybe aren't compliant with the rules of the race. So this is something in my mind that to some of the reputational issues the BC Liberal Party has been trying to build back from. So we do have to take this very seriously. We submitted a letter to the party before this other more recent letter that's been talked quite a bit about in the media. So we've been right there. Uh, six of the seven campaigns, to my knowledge, have written the party and said we're concerned about these members that are non-compliant. So what is the party going to make sure they're scrutinized and dealt with? <clears throat> my belief is that the party is fully aware of the the gravity of the situation. I think they're resourcing their teams to get in there scrutinize again those non-compliant members get them under audit and get rid of them if if they don't fit the rules for me though look i'm running to lead a bc liberal party that communicate that all communities see as their vehicle for meaningful participation in the political process and so when when these things happen people wonder does my vote count And these are questions we just can't have people asking in this race. So we voiced our concerns. We've talked to the party. We're working with the party. I'm confident in their approach, but we do have to deal with this, I think, quickly and transparently. And this is absolutely about what rebuilding and renewal is all about, Scott. If we can't send signals that our house is in order, we have a bigger problem. So we're here to work with the party. I think we're going to turn the corner on this. And let's focus on meaningful engagement and participation with our members.
1: Uh, One idea that has been floated before is having Elections BC take a more active role in administering leadership contests. Do you think there's a role for them to help avoid issues like this?
2: Yeah, it's an interesting question. I I don't think we need Elections BC running and dictating to us every part of our race. Do we need Elections BC to tell us you can only have four leadership debates? But I do think, from a technological perspective, there is an argument to be made that we're using a third-party platform. All parties are using a third-party platform that's monitoring this stuff that has the ability, the resources, the technology to quickly audit and meet out when things aren't compliant. I'm open to that conversation.
1: Okay, I'm not sure if you saw a former MLA Jazz Hall raise some concerns that perhaps the concerns that one or more of the campaigns – I'm not sure which one he was referring to – maybe – crying foul over some of the tactics around organizing uh, specific communities within the province, uh, particularly the South Asian community, and raised concerns whether there was a racial component to the questions over the memberships. Do you have a comment on that?
2: I do. The BC Liberal Party wants to grow. (laughs) This party wants new members. This is the best thing possible when we have communities from all over british columbia engaging in this race but a non-compliant member is a non-compliant member i don't care what your background is your religion your ethnicity your culture your sexual orientation if you are a bona fide member who wants to join this party and you have paid your ten dollars and you have a, a distinct address and phone number and email address come on in this tent and get involved in this race but if you if there are memberships floating in our system that don't comply with the rules, they don't comply with the rules. It's as simple as that. This party wants to grow. We want to engage more people. Let's just make sure that engagement is meaningful.
1: Okay. Before I let you go, and you've been very generous through your time, is there anything we didn't discuss tonight that you feel is important that you'd like to raise?
2: I guess one of the things we maybe didn't talk about too much is some of the additional policies around getting elected. So you could, I don't have to give you a full overview because I think we've talked about climate. I think we've talked about communities and people. I could maybe say a little bit more about business. For example, in the last debate, I was the one candidate talking a ton about small business. So you could ask me a question about small business if you want.
1: Sure. I just, with respect to that, where do you see the role for greater support, or policy changes to assist small businesses and businesses in general?
2: We know this is one of the things I'm so excited about in terms of brand opportunity for the party. The BC Liberal Party has always been associated with big business and big projects, and that's great. We need big businesses and big projects in BC because those entities, they pay great wages, above average wages here in BC, so we want them. But our bigger picture, I think, in many ways is the 500,000 small business owners we have in this province that really are the backbone. It's, It's trite, but it's true. What makes a local community or small town vibrant and interesting and fun to live in is those main street businesses, that little toy store you want to take your kid into on the weekend, that that great little bistro that you take your partner to on their anniversary, on your anniversaries. They really are the heart and soul of communities, and the BC Liberal Party would be wise to become the party of small business because small businesses are people, small businesses are local communities and main streets, and. We should be thinking long and hard about how we help small businesses succeed in BC. Because as as I said earlier, we we don't have a startup problem in BC. We have a scale up problem. So for example, we got a lot of businesses right now thinking about, gosh, how do I compete in an environment where costs are going up due to climate change? I'm being told I have to lower my carbon footprint. I have to invest in new machinery and equipment to do that. How's government going to support me? I think one of the things we can do is we can take PST off machinery and equipment and we can help incentivize businesses that are ready to invest in lower carbon operations. And for me, this connects right through to a productivity and innovation agenda that I also think we can own. So how do we get uh, smaller businesses to become more uh, productive? Because we know a more productive business is more profitable and we know a more profitable business has the space to uh, pay their employees more. Now we're talking about wage growth. That's also how we fight the affordability issue and how we keep young people excited about their future career opportunities in BC. So for me, small businesses is, is the connective tissue to all of that. And we can become the party that speaks for them. I think we're the right party to do it. And I don't think the NDP or the Greens know how to.
1: If people are interested in finding out more about yourself, your campaign or getting involved, where can they go to find out more?
2: outstanding yes go to vallitwin.ca we would love to have you join the team there's thousands of us now around this province who are looking to turn the page and write the next chapter for the bc liberal party so let's get going i would love uh, to meet you give me a call all our information is on the site but please go and get to know me through the website valletwin.ca. thanks scott
1: Valletwin, thank you for uh joining me tonight
2: it was outstanding and uh, great podcast so looking forward to hearing this uh, at a later date
1: Let's jump over to a couple of the stories from the past week or so. So, as we discussed a bit with uh, Val during the interview, there's a potential issue around the BC Liberal Leadership Contest, and there's controversy and concerns being raised over the status of many of the memberships that have been sold as part of the leadership race. The party's reviewing the memberships, this is after the Litwin campaign had sent a letter to the party last month raising concerns. The letter hasn't been released publicly, but the province is reporting that among the concerns raised was that the information included in the membership data was questionable in that it uh, contained several oddities such as addresses listed were for places where there were in fact no homes for people to be living in his campaign's not the only one that's raised concerns apparently six of the seven campaigns have raised concerns with the party over this and the party or the chairs of the party organizing committee for the uh, leadership election have stated that Of the approximately 43,000 members that are eligible to be voting, there are 2,644 that have been played for further follow-up and review. So this is still ongoing. Dew has uh, promised that if he was to be elected leader, he would be giving elections BC greater role and would be introducing legislation to... Have the provincial elections agency administer at least part of the elections for leaders of registered political parties.
0: It's an interesting issue on a number of fronts, and actually, that suggestion by by Gavin to to bring in the Elections BC breaks with what we often hear from parties in situations like this. Parties tend to guard their independence from the state quite quite jealously. They are not generally speaking, open to to a greater regulation on the part of the state than, than is absolutely necessary, arguing that they are private organizations and it is their purpose to, to organize, to create platforms for citizens to organize, to compete for power in, in government and to be in charge of the state. And, and that as a result, it's not really appropriate to have the state regulating aspects of their interaction. And yet- Democracies require effective parties, uh, modern democracies and, and representative systems. And so this is a bit of a quandary. And it's not by no means the first time we've encountered a problem like this. And it does seem like at times having some greater regulation of parties, whether we're talking about party financing, whether we're talking about party use of voter data, something that is notoriously unregulated in Canada, or in this case, regulation of elections. It is an interesting proposition to consider, although it doesn't necessarily solve all the problems that we have here. There's this fundamental challenge. If you are a party, how are you going to select your leader? There's a number of different options out there. We used to do this through delegate con- conventions where there would be some delegates ex officio by virtue of who they were within the party. Others would be sent from each riding association, and, and and they would get together and choose a leader. But that, of course, uh, has fallen out of favor in favor of uh, something that is, seems more democratic in one sense, where the members themselves vote to, to elect the leader. But this can create these kinds of situations where whoever can sign up the most new members has a commanding advantage, and anyone looking to dull that effect is going to try to throw shade on the the new members that are being signed up, and then you find yourself in this contested, contentious space, which is not a comfortable place for a party to be less than a month before it elects a new leader.
1: Yeah, just to be clear on what Gavin News is proposing, he would basically push the roles of voter registration verification, the what he calls boring technical process, to the elections BC but the party would still have control over most of the leadership rules green light process debates the basically the political stuff and it would only be the the technical how you actually run run the election at a a very kind of basic put together a voters list and actually have them vote stuff that would be moved over to elections BC which seems like a Fair compromise, like you pointed out. Parties are not want to give up control over a lot of this stuff, but honestly, it does seem to be the sort of thing that elections BC probably has more general competence in than, well, any political party necessarily. They're they're structured around winning elections, not necessarily doing the, the nuts and bolts of vote counts and whatnot. So uh, I can see the argument for it. Yeah, it's a possibility.
0: It's certainly worth exploring. I don't think it'll solve all these problems. I think in some sense, you may be just moving the problems to a new space. If the question is whether somebody has been signed up as a new member in in, uh, good standing, i I don't know if Elections Canada can take over that role. Part of the role of the party is to decide who is and who is not a member of the party. And so if that's what the hang-up is, and that seems like what the problem is in this particular moment for the BC Liberals, having BC, uh, Elections BC involved might um, might solve some problems, but I don't know if it will solve this problem. And uh, in general, I think political parties, given that they provide a, an important public role, they're are playing a, uh, a role in the maintenance of democracy in the country. And also worth saying, they re- they receive a great deal of support from from the state in various forms, whether it's a, some form of payment support from for, to cover campaign expenses. And it varies from jurisdiction to jurisdiction what is actually done, but, or, or provision of certain kinds of information. Parties receive certain kinds of benefits from the state. So I think there there is an argument for having them subject to certain kinds of oversight. And if they are inviting it in, then so much the better. That's more of a... Uh, or that would be at least a, a more comfortable way to to go about doing it than seeing some sort of de- debate about whether some kind of order can be imposed on parties. And and I, it's probably the only way you would get this kind of regulation introduced, given that parties are the ones who are one way or another in charge of, of the state.
1: And uh, just from a, like, a purely political point of view, this is not a great look for the liberals. they It's not the first leadership race they've had where there have been controversies over – membership list and eligibility for voting in there. So it is one of those things the uh, the liberals certainly need to work on and probably do a little bit of house cleaning or tighten up their rules around that sort of thing for sure.
0: Yeah, it, it, absolutely. Because uh, this is not a good situation. You don't want to be having uh, controversy hanging around the vote and the counting of the vote before the votes have even been cast, let alone counted. It's going to Create problems of legitimacy. Whoever wins, so we uh, recently saw in Manitoba the selection of a new leader there came under a cloud, a controversy over the the counting of votes in, in that situation. And if the the race is close, then again it can bite into the legitimacy of whoever wins and can really put a damper on the the, the uh, entire project of picking a, a new leader who will hopefully, for from the point of view of the party, take the. And take the party in a new direction and, and inject some new enthusiasm and so on. And if you're having to fight this rear guard action to actually uh, defend the, the validity of the, the election result, that's going to eat away at that enthusiasm right from the jump. So it's it's not a, a great situation to be in. And, and on top of that, there is also the the problem that if you are calling into question the the legitimacy of those being signed up as new members, those who have been signed up as new members may look askance at, at that strategy as well. We've seen some complaints raised by... Uh, Former MLA Jaz Johal, along those lines, basically saying that the leadership hopefuls in the in the BC Liberal race are effectively calling into question these members because many of them are of South Asian and Southeast Asian descent, and that is the uh, that there is a tinge of racism behind all this. And so that's the kind of conversation that opens up if you start questioning uh, the the legitimacy of of some members that that. creates this kind of can of worms, and the liberals are now finding themselves, once again, dealing with controversy at a time when they are trying to create a new direction for the party, and it's not even the first time in this race that we've seen controversy uh, becoming the the only headline that really cuts through. So not great for the liberals.
1: Also, not entirely great for the liberals is we have new polling out on affordable housing and British Columbians' views of Parties' trustworthiness on this issue, and the BC Liberals are not pulling in that great. It's definitely one of those policy areas that they're gonna have to do a lot of work as part of their rebuilding to to really address. So this is pulling by uh, Research Co, who asked the question regarding the provincial parties, federal parties, as well as municipal governments. On do you trust or distrust these parties? on there and that the headline numbers combining the, the moderate and completely trust or moderate and completely distrust is the ND BC N D P is fifty five percent trust the modern affordable housing, thirty-three distrust. The Liberals are more or less flipped on that with uh 36 trust, 51% distrust. The Greens sit actually slightly lower than the Liberals, oddly, on the the trust on this. Not what I would have necessarily guessed going in with uh, a 33 percent trust on the issue which i looking at how their local counterparts do on that i i get it i would have thought the the brand would have carried them a little further on that though but with 44 percent distrust thumbs are roughly mirrored at the the federal level overall interestingly they also asked around the municipal governments and uh, municipal governments get a forty-seven percent trust to a forty percent distrust on uh, ability to deliver affordable housing. Which I don't know. Maybe I'm just too in the municipal politics bubble, but that that struck me as high on the the trust on that one, considering what a hash local governments have made of housing policy.
0: It's possible that voters are responding to some general sense of which governments they like as opposed to any kind of detailed response on the policy. Because responding to the housing crisis in BC is is a complicated problem. It's not clear that any level of government could solve the problem unilaterally without the cooperation of other levels of, of government. It is... First and foremost, a provincial responsibility, and it falls to the provincial jurisdiction. And to the extent that municipal government is is at the the forefront of municipal housing issues of housing issues, that that is by the creation of the the provincial government. And and yet, it it is a curious finding. Likewise, curious for the the BC NDP who come out looking good in the survey, but not 100% clear why that would be they they've taken some action around the margins to try try to address housing issues and it may be that they're getting credit for some of those actions taken early in their their first term but it's not like they are undertaking a, a revolution on the the building of new housing around the province or they're, they're increasing the homeowners grant yet again or the the exemption for the homeowners grant yet again and so they're, well, they're finding would, all sorts uh, of ways Sorry, Yeah that
1: threshold is set just shy of 2 million and with the tapering off, yeah, over households over $2 million are, are getting the uh, subsidy from the NDP, which is something they didn't necessarily have to do, or they, they could have focused that much more on that same resources on more directly supporting affordable housing, because it was definitely a political choice on their part to continue to raise the homeowner's grant threshold rather than keep it where it was when they came into power
0: they simply by doing nothing, they could have gradually seen that grand dwindle and then become less of a, a tax advantage for those who already own a home and, and redirect resources elsewhere to try to find ways to create additional housing, create additional opportunities for those who do not own yet. And, and yet that's not the case. Those who argue in defense of the idea suggest that perhaps, well, it's another incentive to buy a home. But uh, to be honest, we don't need another incentive to buy a home. It's pretty incentivized already. The problem is that that there aren't homes for people to buy that are affordable and it's a it's a kind of vague notion to to ask these kinds of questions so i'm not surprised that a lot of the results come in this muddy middle I, but i think it's So the BC NDP have to be pleased to see that they are coming out ahead of just about uh, every other group being asked about about this issue. And I I wonder how much of that is just a, a function of brand, where BC NDP and the federal NDP, they are supposed to care about redistribution of resources to try to create additional opportunities for those who do not have access to housing, to other kinds of opportunities. That it's one of the so the core missions of those parties to try to redress those imbalances in society, and they are just simply getting credit for that. I don't know if there's any more detailed or concrete uh, issue or policies that are driving this result.
1: Yeah, I think uh, strength of brand is a, a large part of this. Um, yeah, like, like you said, the, the NDP is not exactly moved aggressively on the housing front in the way I think a lot of people – Probably it's bad to consider how big a role affordability played in the, the 2017 election where they came into power on that. It was interesting. I didn't throw this in the show notes, but it, it did get discussed in our uh, patron slack earlier today. They ran a press release trumpeting all the the new homes registered, which is basically effectively housing starts on that and how they were setting new records on that, which isn't something I've seen provincial governments put out before and in the Val Litwin interview that uh, our listeners will have just heard, but but you haven't yet, Stuart. He talks about having the the province take a much more active role in getting municipalities to do more around adding more homes, particularly around transit and the like. And just between that, it does seem like there's a, a bit of a ground shift in just The way all the parties and all the politicians are thinking about housing, it's in much more kind of generally yimby direction. And it's interesting to watch that develop over the years because that wasn't necessarily the case five, six years ago.
0: Yeah, it, it is interesting. And I, I would have gamely pretended like I had already heard the interview just for the magic of radio. But uh, we can uh, peel back the curtain, let folks know I haven't heard the interview yet. I look forward to listening it as well once this comes out. But it's, a I think, a, an increasing acceptance of the the idea that this is a real problem that's not going away and that p- parties want to be seen on the right side of taking action to, to try to improve access to housing and affordability simply because there are so many people, including voters, including from groups that would typically come out and vote. So it's not just the, the, the marginalized communities in society that are less likely to uh, be voting in large numbers and, and they it's not right, but it is often the case that they, their issues are overlooked in elections. People who would otherwise see themselves as upwardly mobile or and active in politics in all kinds of ways are being shut out of the opportunities to... To get ahead, to, to get that, that, that housing that is such a, a benchmark of uh, success. And as we're seeing, a very lucrative way to create savings for one's, one's later years, one's family and so on. And so we have. Not everyone within a generation, but the further we go along in time, the harder it is to get into the, the housing market. Parties have to be aware of that and that it is interesting to see that becoming a little bit more of a consensus position, even if it is in terms of positioning as opposed to a significant new policy on the issue.
1: And finally, Ottawa, a week ago, this first story we couldn't get into the last week's show, but we definitely wanted to touch on that, at least the details of a – at least the details, of a $40 billion First Nations Child Welfare Agreement. Uh, this is agreement in principle that final details have to be worked out and ratified, but it would include $20 billion for compensation, $20 billion for the uh, long-term reform of child we- welfare on reserves. Uh, so the Assembly of First Nations estimate that more than 200,000 children and youth would be uh, eligible under this deal that was reached.
0: It's hard to describe this as a good news story. It is long overdue that there's uh, support being provided to in- Indigenous children, many of whom are, are no longer children and are long since removed from these situations. Uh, there, There is some financial compensation headed uh, to their way. It's still not finalized yet. There, this is still a, an agreement in principle, as far as I understand. So this is not immediate relief for anyone. But it is, I think, something of a relief to see that the, the, the federal government is no longer – Fighting against these claims in court. This is a, a story that's played out for 15 years now. The original court cases against the, the federal government were filed back in 2007, and we've spent the last 15 years the government on, on Canadians' behalf has been fighting against that in court. And it has been uncomfortable to watch for anyone who had who felt like the the claims were that the claims had merit and that there there ought to be there ought to have been more done for you know, Indigenous children in in under the responsibility of child welfare services in in some capacity. And so it's, I think, a relief to see that, that action happening and to see that there is real money here. This is a big dollar amount in absolute terms and comparative terms. It's a lot of money, the money to go to reforming systems one hopes will have an impact. But even though it is a great Deal of, of cash, once you start spreading it out across 200,000 individuals, the, the individual effects, is, it's going to be quite limited. So it's, as a number of the commentators, uh, respect, reacting to the news have pointed out, including, uh Mr. Miller, it's not going to, um, it's not going to take away what happened but it can create some basis to start for people to start to move forward and it's an acknowledgement that canada has let down indigenous peoples in a systematic way and it's worth noting that this was happening long after the last residential school closed or not that long after 12 years after the last indigenous residential school closed so it's just there there continues to be a, a gap between what ought to be done for Indigenous peoples by the Canadian government and and what actually happens. And again, we've seen that that gap never gets closed until someone forces it close. It's heartening that we're seeing some action here, but again, it's it's one step in a much longer process.
1: Yeah, And we won't uh, know the full details until the final agreement gets hammered out. Uh, That's expected to be around end of March or April of this year. But yeah, an important step in the right direction, and, and not a, a small dollar value as you as you mentioned. But still, more work to be done for sure. No, oh. uh, thanks for joining me again. Uh, great, great to have you back, and sound a little better this time too.
0: Yeah, that's the real reason I wanted to come back on the show is to show off my shiny new microphone. So hopefully, the sound was uh, a little clearer this time around. I figured it was time to up up my podcasting game a little bit. I'm happy to come on anytime.
1: I'm oh, sure so the listeners uh, appreciate the, uh, the investment you made there. Uh, yeah, so, yeah, if people want to find out more or follow your commentary going forward. Worth need to look besides our patron Slack where you're a uh, contributor.
0: Yeah, they can uh, find me on the, the Slack, which again, it's a, a, a great opportunity to learn more about politics, to, to become a, a Patreon subscriber of the podcast and, and join in there. It's They can also find me on on the Twitter, likely posting about my latest Wordle score. I have two hours and t- 19 minutes to get the answer to today's puzzle, and I got two guesses left, so I better get to it.
1: Okay, this is one of those Twitter fads that I have not been taken apart in, so that. The reference may have flown slightly over my head as I've been on a bit of a social media break, which has been refreshing and I should have done before. But yeah, no, definitely uh, give Stuart a follow if you're still laying it around there on uh, the various social medias. Yeah.
0: And you can tell me how you did on Wordle. I, it's, it's a, I can't, don't, please don't tell me how you did on Wordle, but it is the latest fad. And as, as fads go, this one is very wholesome. I have nothing bad to say about it.
1: Okay. Excellent. Stuart, uh, thanks for joining me tonight.
0: Anytime. Thank you.
1: And that has been Playcoast. Find links to everything we talked about at playcoast.ca. Support the show and get access to our Slack channel at patreon.com slash playcoast. Our intro music credit is beautiful British Columbia by Serge Plotnikov. Playcoast is a production of Boot Media and editing services are provided by CHLY 101.7 FM in Nanaimo. Wash your hands and stay home. Thanks for listening.